Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law From Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am very excited about our guest today. We have Luis Scott. So Luis is a speaker. He's a coach. He's the managing attorney of Bader Scott Injury Attorneys, as well as eight-figure firm. I've been really interested. Uh, funny enough, we were talking a little bit on the pre-chat. I first heard about Luis from a former guest, Jeff Oatson, but um, I had to see what all this was about. So thank you so much for coming on to the show, Luis. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Okay, so you've had a really interesting path. And I actually, it's funny enough, I heard you on another podcast not too long ago, but um, I'm really curious. I mean, I love your story, but like, tell us a little bit more about how you got into law in the first place and what eventually led you to doing the eight-figure firm. Yeah, so um, when I got into law, it was one of those uh, kind of uh, chance opportunities. I think a lot of people go through these scenarios where they are lucky, you know, quote unquote lucky. And that was kind of my situation. I was uh, in a business law class. I kind of felt like I, maybe I was never good enough to go to law school, but there was a judge who was leading the class and he says, you know, you can go to law school. I, I'd love to show you do an internship over the summer. And I went and spent three months with him uh, over the summer. And I was uh, interpreting in court. I'm originally for Spanish is my first language. I'm from Puerto Rico. So I was interpreting for him in, in court and translating for clients. And it gave me so much confidence to get into the legal space. I decided to apply for a law firm job and held every job in a law firm. I I was a reception, legal assistant, paralegal, marketing. I did non-attorney sales work and then ultimately went to law school, became a lawyer. And that's kind of how this all materialized. And, and then my love for teaching is what led me to a figure firm. So that's kind of my uh, 32nd history in, in the law. That's really good, too. And I'll also say this, too. Um, one of the interesting things that you had a little bit of a professional sports career as well, right? I never, unfortunately, I never made a professional. My my dad actually did play double A baseball. I went, I, I played division one baseball, but injuries kept me from making it professional. But I played in some of these kind of like semi-pro leagues while I was in college. But yeah, unfortunately, I never made it full professional, but definitely played with a lot of guys who, who went pro. So it, it felt way up there for sure. Yeah, because I mean, I think we'll, we'll definitely get to this at some point in the interview, but it's like, you can imagine just um, a lot of people don't talk about this, but like the mindset advantage that you have to do to like compete at anything at such a high level is such an advantage in business, I think. Yeah, I, for me, what it was is it developed the, kind of like the skill set of grit, which is being able to do the monotonous for an extended period of time without losing enthusiasm. And in the sport of baseball specifically, you do spend a lot of time doing very repetitive training, whether it's hitting in batting practice or even taking ground balls out on the field. It's just the repetition is what develops the muscle memory. And that really leads into business, to be honest. It's it's when you develop that repetition on the field, when you develop it as an athlete, it actually carries over into business. And if you can extend your horizons and do the monotonous in business for an extended period of time, I believe that's what ultimately leads to success. And honestly, the proof is in the pudding too, because I'm not surprised considering how fast everything grew, but like, honestly, there's not a lot of people that can say that they played all the different positions in the law firm too. And a lot of people would turn their nose up to that. But yeah. I feel like, you know, it's kind of when you're doing the non-attorney sales work or doing the reception or whatever, it's like, you know, it's like you were shooting threes in the gym or yeah. um, I don't know what they're fielding grounders or ground balls or something. <laughs> the equivalents, yeah. But anyways. 
So um, let's talk about the eight-figure firm. So one of the things I'm really fascinated by is um, I, I definitely believe that there's different challenges at different levels. And I was curious just as far as what you see as the difference between maybe getting up to the seven-figure level and what's the difference between breaking that and getting to level eight, eight-figure, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a great question because a lot of people believe if I can just get to seven figures, then I just have to stack seven figures 10 times. And that's not how eight figures works. You know, to get to 10 million in predictable revenue, it's much more about people. And this may be something that that people find offensive if they're a smaller firm and they're struggling with marketing. But I always say marketing is actually the easiest part of your business. Uh, I say that kind of jokingly because we all know it. There, there is some difficulty in marketing and you still have to have a good brand and message and, and, and be able to broadcast that to people. But when you think about your business, the hardest part of the business is actually managing people. People are the most difficult part of the business. So the difference between a seven-figure firm and an eight-figure firm is your ability ability to manage people, your ability to hire the right people, train the right people, retain the right people, and then get them to act on your behalf so that the business actually grows past that threshold. And, that, and to me, that's the biggest difference. If you can't find the right people and the right leaders, it'll be very difficult to get to eight figures. I couldn't agree more too. And we've seen just clients of ours, people we've had on the show, all kinds of different situations. Sometimes, and you know, marketing is just such a sexy thing for people to talk about sometimes. But <laughs> yeah. for a lot of firms, it's the worst thing that you can do. And you know, it's like, you know, the dog catching the car or something. When they actually get the amount of business they think they're about, they get it and then makes everything blow up. You got people quitting, people working late, losing weight, gaining weight. <laughs> like oh, a miserable my situation. Gosh, you're nailing it. Yeah. You're absolutely nailing it. It's it's when you start getting the clients, you realize how critical people become. They are truly the production. They are the sales. They are the, you know, the internal marketing, the internal leaders. They're, they're, the, they're the reason that anybody stays at the job. It's not because you're getting clients. An employee does not stay with the employer just because you're getting business. They could care less about that. They want an, an environment where they get paid, where they can fulfill their dreams and goals, where they feel that they're a part of something that, that's more than just making money. And that is hard to create that kind of environment. And so the people, man, that's what really matters. Okay. So going into that a little bit, like as far as when we have the situation, when people are coming to you for consulting for eight figure firm, for example, are there any commonalities that you see that people are consistently messing up when they come to you? Yeah. The majority of people that, that I work with, their biggest struggle is actually delegation. And one of the visionaries, what I call the visionary CEO, which is what you find a lot in entrepreneurial type lawyers, they're very good at creating vision. They're very good at knowing what they have to do. They're very bad at doing it. They're very bad at following through. They're very bad at getting other people to act on their behalf. And one of the things that I teach is delegation is essentially transferring authority from yourself to someone else so that other person actually acts on your behalf. And that's very difficult to do. You have to convince that person that it's not only in their best interest to act on your behalf, but it's in the best interest of the entire organization. It's in the best interest of you as an owner and that somehow they're going to get some reward from that. We believe many times that if we just pay someone, they're going to do the job. And unfortunately, that's not how it works. You have to actually get their buy-in both emotionally, logically, show them the path to get things done. So that's the most common thing that I find is visionary CEOs who are having a difficult time getting the team to work on their behalf, getting the team to actually implement the strategies that they want to implement in their firm. And ultimately, that leads to an inability to actually grow the law firm.
Yeah, because I can imagine if that doesn't get fixed, like you're kind of just running around spinning plates all the time. And, you know, speaking from personal experience, <laughs> um, I think especially when you have the situation where you're a visionary, you don't like following through on things and you're delegating things to follow through. Well, you still have to follow through in the person that you were telling <laughs> right. to follow through, right? <laughs> right. And I guess back to like this kind of thing of accountability. So like, how do you help people start thinking about that? Like, how do you guys think about accountability? Yeah, so for me, accountability is a sign of respect. And I always say that you hold people accountable because you respect them and you and and they allow to be held accountable because they respect you. So it's mutual respect. And if I delegate something to, to an employee and I don't follow up, what I'm really saying is that my delegated task is not meaningful and therefore I don't respect you enough to follow up. And that's not the kind of environment we want to have. So accountability starts with first understanding that it's a sign of respect, both for you and you're respecting me when you allow me to hold you accountable. So it starts there. And then the second thing we do is we try to take the emotion out of it. We have a process for accountability. We we set up the right meeting cadence. So accountability is, is being done in a measured way versus in a, I didn't get something done. So now I all, all of a sudden I need to hold somebody accountable. No, no, no. Let's start with accountability being part of the respect. And it's just going to be in a measured way. Every Monday, we're going to have a meeting. We're going to have an accountability. It's just what we're going to do. I'm not going to wait until something goes wrong to then have this faux accountability that I'm going to hold on you because I'm stressed that you're not doing what I want. So I, I think those two things can really set the boundaries for you holding people accountable. That's brilliant. I really have I've never heard that perspective on that. And it's it's kind of interesting too, because I've been also, you know, speaking personally, just sometimes it feels like a pain in the butt to follow up with people. And I can imagine like there's a difference between really investing your time and energy into accountability for your organization and paying lip service to it, right? Because it's like, you know, the 11.59 p.m. freak out is not holding people accountable. <laughs> exactly. Right? That's interesting. And that kind of answered my next question, which was basically, you know, at what point do you transition from personally holding someone accountable, which might not be any increase in bandwidth whatsoever to letting people do it on their own. And the meetings are the key to this, you're saying. I think it's a meeting and I think it's, a, it's it's noticing when people are graduating through the levels of employment. And so I teach essentially four levels of employment. You know, an employee starts with you and uh, they generally don't know anything about the job. So you have to kind of micromanage them. After that, you want to participate with them where you're telling them what to do. You're helping them walk through it. So I use the email example a lot. Initially, you're going to write the emails for them. That's micromanage. Then you're going to participate. You're going to tell them to write it, but you're going to review it. And then you're going to delegate, hey, write this email, but now I don't need to review it. But that last piece is the leveraged employee. Now, I don't even have to tell you to write the email. I don't have to review the email. You know what to do. You know how to do it right. And you're going to do it on your own. And so we all want that leveraged employee. And so what we're looking for when we're talking about accountability is, are you a leveraged employee? If you are, I don't have to hold you as accountable as I did before. Now you're holding other people accountable, which means I've multiplied myself. And that's how you increase your bandwidth. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like I was going to say, it kind of reminds me of like, I grew up with uh, two, one brother, one sister, but like, you know, I know people who have seven, eight, nine, 10 brothers and sisters, yeah. whatever. <laughs> but you get a family that big, the kids start taking care of each other, right? And that's like right. kind of where you want to get. But that kind of leads me to another topic too. So when we have a leveraged employee, what does it take to move from a leveraged employee to somebody that you can trust to develop other people on your team? So to me, what we're looking for is someone who is multiplying my leadership. And so a leveraged employee who we now can entrust to work with someone else is someone who's proactively uh, desiring that leadership. They're proactively seeking out the opportunity to develop other people. And what that looks like in an organization, it's someone who's setting up trainings on their own. Someone who's who's saying, you know what, I don't, I don't like this workflow. I'm going to develop a proper workflow and I'm going to submit it to my supervisor or I'm going to submit it to my boss. Like that's what it starts looking like. It's someone that you start saying, wow, did, did you see that such and such really put together that, that great plan and that great concept and that great policy and procedure, like nobody even asked them what proactivity, when you start seeing that, when you start seeing that leverage employee going above and beyond to work with people, 
then you know that they're ready for that multiplying effect. And and the thing about a multiplier, someone who who actually acts like you, behaves like you and trains other people, it has to be something that is their passion. Because most people, if they don't have the passion for teaching and developing, they're not going to do it. And so you're looking for somebody who has that passion to also develop other people. Do you think that's something that's a part of the progression for somebody getting to leverage? Or is that like a type of person? Can people develop that? Is that born or is that made? Man, that, what a great question, because like, I struggle with this because I see people progress. I, I see people come in 21, 22 years old, right out of college. They don't look like they could teach anybody. And then five or six years later, they're all of a sudden a leader and they're teaching and they're developing and they're training. And, and my question is, did they always have it in them or did they develop that? It's so hard to know, but I do believe there are absolutely people born with that ability. There was a, a book, Now Discover Your Strengths, where you could uh, take this quiz. And, and one of the character traits was woo, winning others over. And some people are just naturally good at winning others over. Some people are naturally good at teaching and developing and have that predisposition. I do think you could develop it, but you have to have the passion for it. So you either have the passion and have to develop the skill, or you just have the skill and hopefully you have the passion to do it too. But I, I think it could be a little bit of both, but people who are predisposition is to already be a good teacher or want to be a good teacher are more likely to succeed because they have the passion for it. Yeah, that's interesting. And like, I'm kind of thinking the way that you'd want to have somebody who either has it or doesn't, it's kind of the same for the you as the organization, you as the leader, because you want to have a place that fosters that because, you know, I'm sure more people are shutting off opportunities for people that don't have a great place to work that could probably get that if they had those people. And again, God forbid, you know, retaining an employee for six years is, is you know, reach goal for a lot of people, right? Right, right. I mean, it, retaining people past a year, I think I, the other day, I saw something that in Atlanta, the, the average employment's like 10 or 11 months, like it's, it's hard to retain people even for a year. And so you have to, and this kind of goes back to what's the difference between seven and eight figures. At, at eight figures, you have to be doing a really good job at retention. And that's uh, really important uh, for us. The other day, I we, we did an analysis of our leadership team and our average leadership team member has been with us almost five years. Like that is, that is massive. Like when you can retain people like that, it's easier to develop efficiencies and scale your business. Yeah, because every single time somebody walks out of the door, it's like, you know, uh, such a slot, <laughs> especially when somebody's super important, right? Yeah, it changes everything. I think you mentioned basketball earlier, and uh, it's kind of like when you're swapping out the, the starters for the people on the bench, you could go from up 30 points to down 10 in one quarter. I mean, I see this all the time with my Atlanta Hawks. You know, they're up by 30, and I'm like, we got this one in the bag. And the next thing you know, third quarter comes around, and we're losing by 10, 50 points because they swapped out the personnel. So yeah, swapping out personnel could be critical to, to your team. Yeah. Kind of question on this for anyone who might be a little earlier on the journey. Do you think there's ever a time where it's too early to start focusing on stuff like culture and operations? Oh my gosh. I, I mean, you should focus on culture and operations on day one because you are going to hire and build your business based upon the vision that you have for your business. When I launched Eight Figure Firm, I had no clients. I had no employees. I wrote a vivid vision, three-year vivid vision for what I wanted for the culture, what I wanted for the type of client, what kind of revenues I wanted how I was going to hire, what type of people did we want, core values, vision, mission. I thought that was so critical because when you set your intention, it's easier to actually reach that. And I heard something today on a podcast I was listening to this morning. It was talking about how if you take aim at anything, you're likely to hit it. What happens with most people is they either don't take aim or they take aim at too many things. And so they're confused. But when it comes to your business, no matter how big you are, you want to take aim at something. And, and that something needs to be the culture, the operations, the vision, the mission. What are you trying to achieve? And if you do that, that and you set your intention, I think you're, you're more likely to hit it. 
Yeah. And I can imagine, I mean, there's so many people that are just kind of, you know, they get into that position where they hang up the shingle, they start taking referrals, and then it's just kind of getting battered around by the wind. I heard this really good quote once, and it was like, you know, some people live to have a 10 year law firm and other people have a one the same year that they repeat 10 times. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That, that's miserable, right? I mean, having the same firm for 10 years. Ugh. Yeah, seriously. I mean, it probably gets a little easier the higher up on the, the totem pole you get, right? Yeah. But still, I mean, if it's, if it's bad and people are just, you know, chasing around a 5 a.m. B&I meetings, like, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't even wish one year that on some people. <laughs> no, I mean, if, I, if, if 20 years in, if I still had to do the same thing that I was doing 20 years ago, I don't think I would want to be in this industry. I mean, it, it's you want to be graduating your business. Uh, it helps you fall in love again because you're falling in love at a different level. And I think that that's what it's all about. So going back to that vivid vision, like I'm sure it wasn't, you know, 100% what it was the day that you ended up doing it on, on day one. So how do you like, what's your advice for people who might not want to take that first step because they're worried it's not going to be perfect or they're worried it's not going to be representative or it's too far out or anything like that? Yeah, I have this uh, saying, I don't know if I heard this somewhere or if I made it up, but it's, you know, perfection is the enemy of progress. It sounds like something somebody else made up, but uh, I can't, I don't know who to give credit to. But when you're trying to get things perfect, you're actually not going to progress in life. I think you have to be comfortable with something that's good, that's actionable, and then fix it. Like be in a constant state of repair and a constant state of improvement. And I think that that's going to get you a lot further along. Uh, my first business plan did not end up the way that I thought it was going to end up. It, it was totally, I was totally wrong about that business plan. But then I revised it and I wrote another business plan and that one was wrong. And then I re revised it and wrote another business plan, but each year progressing more and more and more. And that's the key is that that our, our goal in life is not to reach perfection or to reach some sort of specific goal in the time that we set, but rather that we're moving towards the goal. It's the pursuit. It's the journey that really makes it all worthwhile. So I would just say good is good enough. Get something done and just take action. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, this is uh, I actually I was in a conversation about something this the other day, too. But I honestly think that within the legal field, there's more of a tendency, if not like what the field demands, but the, the type of people that the field attracts to be mm -hmm. very, very detail oriented. I mean, like, God forbid, like, you know, you messed up a detail on, on a client contract or something important. And then, you know, you're in a really, really bad place. So I think like the tendency toward perfectionism is there in a lot, a huge part with attorneys. But I think it's something to be aware of and something to work against, right? It's like, I think, you know, kind of falling on this, 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 this path of momentum that we're talking about, like any goal is going to get you out of your seat, right? It doesn't necessarily right. have to be the perfect goal that's going to last decades, but just, you know, it's better to have that than have nothing. I mean, the thing is that any goal is going to be more than no goal. And so if your goal is a million in revenue, it's going to be better than no goal at all. If, if it's 2 million, 3 million, I think the goal that you should set, and this is something that I've worked with, with some of my clients when, when, when we work together, because our goal is obviously to help law firms reach eight figures in revenue, but some people don't have that level of belief. They don't have that level of ambition yet. And so my goal is to help people reach the goals that are in sync with their ambition level. And the way that you know that your ambition level is being met or matched is because it's not actually motivating you to do more. And your ambition level generally motivates you to, to, to work at the, your highest capacity. And so if you truly have the ambition of, of eight figures, you're going to work a lot harder than if your ambition is, is only one million. And there's no shame in having, you know, ambition for a million. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just know yourself and then set goals that help you stay motivated to reach them. And that's, that's really the key to success. So if we have a situation where the goal is too small, like, you know, the symptom would be just not really having energy, being lethargic, just not getting like, you know, up in the morning and wanting to get out and get it. 
Do you think it's possible to set goals that are too large? I think that some people set goals that are not consistent with their work ethic. And so I don't know if you can set a goal that's too large if you have the work ethic for it. But some people set a goal. I'll give you an example. This is uh, when my wife hears this podcast, she's going to laugh. I set the goal to have six pack abs, but the goal was, was to do it in three months. The problem is I didn't have the work ethic for three months abs, right? You know, like I needed, I needed a whole year. And so if I have this ambition of six pack abs, but I don't have the work ethic for it, I'm going to become very frustrated. It's not that the goal was too high. It's just that I didn't, I didn't have the work ethic for it. And so I'm not going to achieve it. And ultimately I frustrated myself. And so I think you need to set goals that you know, you have the work ethic for. If your goal is a $10 million firm, but you don't have the work ethic for a $10 million firm, you're going to end up frustrated. So know yourself and either develop a greater work ethic or just set a goal that's not that high. For me, it's going to have to be no six-pack abs for sure because I don't have I don't have the work ethic for it. <laughs> well, I love that frame too because it's something that's like completely under your control. It's not like somebody's not good enough or not qualified right. enough or whatever. Like everyone can control our work ethic, but it really just kind of comes down to how bad you want it, right? Absolutely. At the end of the day, your work ethic is one of the only things you can control. It's it's the only thing that nobody can stop you from waking up early. Nobody can stop you from working late. Nobody can stop you from essentially doing anything for the most part when it comes to work. And so you're completely in control. And, and when I played baseball in college, well, I got up every morning at 530 to run and to go to the gym. And I was on the ball field three hours, you know, practicing and, and we were lifting weights in the afternoon. My work ethic mattered. And I got to control that. And there were guys who slept in and their work ethic showed on the field. Now, kind of going back a little bit to the vision. So when we get to the point where we have this and it's defined, it's obviously a process before we get to the point where this is translated through the company. And I, I would probably hazard a guess that the people that are doing the best probably have the most visibility for this. Mm -hmm. So after one's you know, taken the exercise to, to develop what they really want in their business, how do you go about getting that transferred to other people in the organization? I think that you have to keep it alive. I think you have to spend time with your teams, quoting the vision, getting people excited about the vision, reminding and refreshing people on the vision, but setting all of your intention on the vision. If you really want something, you're going to reorient your life to achieve that. And so if, if you know you have a vision for your firm, then you should be reorienting the entire firm and the team to achieve that end. And so whatever that vision is, it's a matter of figuring out what does the team have to do? What do I have to do in order to achieve that? And then reminding people of those things, reminding them of how you can actually achieve your vision and what are the steps and what we have to do individually and collectively to make that happen. And so we like to make the vision part of every meeting. We have three different things that you can use in, the, in any meeting, the vision, the mission, and the core values. One of those have, have to be brought up in every single meeting. And that's how we keep it alive, you know, for our team. Okay. Interesting. And do you guys just like start out with the meeting for it? Like, Hey, we're, you know, do you guys rotate or how do you, how do you recommend getting that worked in the actual meeting? So I'm sorry if this is a super nitty gritty question. I'm super yeah, no, no, that's a, that, that's a, that's a great question. I, I actually believe it or not, I get that question all the time. That's the cool thing. The way that we incorporate is we, we start off with a thought provoking question. Like, how have you been living out the vision this week? Uh, how have you been, you know, executing on the mission this week? You know, what is the core value that resonates with you and tell us why. And so, you know, one of our core values is respect without exception. And, and I may say, you know, this week, respect without exception is one of my core values. It's resonating with me, had a difficult client. The client got really upset about something that happened. And, but I, I, I remained calm. I showed him, you know, complete respect. And later I got an email that where the client was apologizing for the way that they behaved. 
I was just glad that I maintained my composure. Awesome. You know, great job. And then everybody gives them a round of applause and then it goes to the next person. So we use those discussion questions, what we call connection questions to connect people to the vision, mission values so that it becomes real and alive. And that's, and usually we lead off the meeting like that. That's super cool. And then, you know, kind of sticking on a little bit of this like nitty gritty stuff too, like what kind of meeting cadence do you recommend for people? We have different levels of meeting cadence. It, it, it really depends on the size of the organization. Assuming that you have a leadership team that is side and separate from the rest of the staff, we recommend that you have a weekly leadership meeting, that you have bi-weekly one-on-ones with the individual staffs, uh, that you have a quarterly meeting for the entire firm or the leadership team if it's big enough, and that you have a, at least a yearly meeting, all hands meeting. Now we do something that uh, I believe a lot of firms do, not everyone does it. Uh, when I say firms, a lot of businesses do it, bigger businesses, but it's a daily stand-up huddle. And uh, that's a 12-minute meeting where we have a connection question and we go over numbers, we let people discuss, and it's just a way to get people started for the day. So daily huddle, weekly leadership meeting, weekly department meeting, bi-weekly one-on-ones, quarterly leadership or all-hands meeting, depending on the size of your firm, and then a yearly meeting. So went through that really quickly, but it's just the cadence that keeps us connected. That's the whole goal is how do we stay connected to that vision, mission, and those values? And for anyone who's kind of like raising their hand silently and asking, oh, that seems like a bunch of meetings too. Like it's, I mean, I think I recognize the, the stand-up meeting from Rockefeller Habits, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yep. Yeah. So the stand-up meeting, you could you could actually find that in um, a couple of places. One of them is, is Rockefeller Habits. We did a training with the Ritz-Carlton where the, the Ritz-Carlton, 21,000 employees does a stand-up meeting daily, daily stand-up meeting. Okay. So we don't have 21,000 employees. So if they can do it, uh, anybody can do it. But the meeting cadence, it may sound like a lot, but what we're looking for is efficiency. I I'm not saying a three-hour meeting. Our leadership meeting is slotted for 90 minutes, and my goal is to be out of there in 60. We're in and out. We're connecting, we're delivering, we're adding value to each other, and we're out of there. They're not long, drawn-out meetings. And, and so it's all about creating efficient meetings with good agendas that are meaningful and can actually achieve some sort of event. It's not about just chit-chatting and hoping we get to some sort of, you know, some sort of uh, uh, finale or something, you know, where there's an agenda. And when you have that agenda, it helps you be more, more efficient. And I'll also say, like, I mean, meetings themselves are efficient in terms of like the meta, right? Because it's like, it's, you know, how many emails that people spend 45 minutes typing out are saved by having that? Or how many times do you have to inform people individually of what's going on when you can have everyone in the same room and let everyone weigh in and avoid the, you know, he said, she said, or different versions of the story, right? Absolutely. And the thing about email or Slack or any of these other uh, alternative methods of communication is that it's really hard to communicate tone. It's really hard to communicate cadence. It's really hard to communicate volume, intensity through an email. Like it's, it's, it's more difficult and it's easier to be one-on-one -on -one and to not misinterpret what people are saying in a one-on-one -on -one type of capacity. When I'm in front of you and we're having the conversation, if you feel like I said something wrong, I can immediately clarify. Where in an email, it can fester with the person like, oh, I cannot believe they sent that. And, and it ca causes all kinds of, of things. Now, I'm not saying not to send emails or slacks or anything like that. I think you want to use other methods of communication. But that face-to-face -face meeting, I think, builds connection. And, and, and to me, that is very powerful. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I, we actually have a rule at the company. I started off with this for the um, client business, but we've made it internal as well. It's just like, yeah, no bad news over email, no bad news over text. Just I assume like the person is going to take the worst possible interpretation of <laughs> what you're typing there. Yeah, I actually like that rule. I've 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 never uh, heard of that, but it's a solid rule because it avoids all kinds of unnecessary drama that may happen when people misinterpret things. And the funny thing is that I love this quote that if you leave it up to interpretation, it will be misinterpreted every time. And so you're taking the interpretation factor out of the email.
So I love that. Fun fact too. I, I came with that as an SOP for dealing with a toxic family member. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. We take it where we can find it. Um, All right. Okay. So switching gears a little bit, like, you know, I think the team thing is such an important stuff, but you know, I think with anyone who's talking about people in organization, we got to talk about hiring. So what are the things that you see a lot of people coming into your program? Like what are people getting wrong about hiring in the first place? The first thing is they, they don't know who they're hiring. And I think developing an employee avatar is so critical, knowing the type of person that you want. And for a long time, you know, we've, we've said this, and, and this may sound controversial, so let me finish the full, the full explanation. But we've said things like we want to make sure that we're, you know, diverse and inclusive and not discriminatory etc. And what we've done is we've we've just not selected criteria for people to work for us. And I think that that in the effort to just include everyone, we've essentially not targeted on who our demo is for our individual worker. Now, I'm absolutely not saying to discriminate. You know, I, I'm Hispanic, so I would hate for somebody to discriminate against me, the dark skin Hispanic, right? But uh, what I'm saying is that you have to know what you're looking for. Does the position require a skill set? Does the position require a certain, you know, height, body type? There are jobs like that, and maybe not in the legal world, right? <laughs> when it's, you know, just the legal world, it's a little bit different. But I use this extreme example of the inclusivity issue to illustrate that sometimes we go way too extreme. We go, we want to be so inclusive that we just don't want to exclude anyone. But there are some people that we have to exclude. Your job, if you're hiring lawyers, may be to hire lawyers. If you are working at a law firm and you find yourself in a situation where you don't have enough representation in a particular demographic, you may need to hire in that demographic, especially if you need that. And I'll give you an example, because sometimes people feel a little, little icky about this. We represent a lot of Hispanic clients. We did not have a lot of Spanish-speaking attorney representation. I don't believe that it's, there's anything wrong with saying we need to hire a Spanish-speaking attorney. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, where do the primary Hispanic-speaking attorneys come from? People who are Hispanic, right? Could there be someone, a non-Hispanic, who could speak Spanish? Absolutely. My business partner, he is non-Hispanic. He speaks Spanish. Could absolutely happen. But generally speaking, we're going to have, we're, it's going to be a Hispanic. So you may set up an avatar. We want to hire a Hispanic attorney who is going to be able to communicate with the person's language. People are so afraid to be discriminatory that they don't even set the avatar. Then they end up hiring an attorney or a staff member that doesn't meet the need. And they go, ah, now I don't have the people that meet the need. And so it's the biggest mistake people make is not setting up the avatar. The second thing is people don't know how to review resumes. And the third thing is people don't know how to interview. And so number two is reviewing resumes to determine the longevity factor of a person. If a person has multiple one-year jobs, it's very likely that they're going to only be one year with you. That's the next thing. And that's very important because people, they go, no, no, they're going to change. When they come here, they're going to be, they're going to be the, they're going to be with me forever, right? They're not. They've been at, you know, they've been working 20 years. Every job has been one year. You're going to be the next one year. And so I think looking at, at resumes and then the interview part is interviewing for culture fit and interviewing for values. And I think it's important that you know what your culture is and you know what your values are and that you ask questions specific to those things, not just about job skills, because job skills can be trained, can be developed, but culture fit and values are not as easily replaceable. So it's, it's better to hire for culture and values and then train on skills than it is to hire for skills and have someone who doesn't fit into the organization. And as far as interviewing for the, the values and stuff, is that something that you do for like a line of questioning or is there any sort of live work tasks or anything like that? Like how do you get to really kick the tires and make sure that somebody represents the values? When it comes to the values, I, I, I like to ask things that spark their creativity. So I'll say something like, tell me what are the top five or three core values to you? 
what are they? And I try to see if they have any kind of connection to our core values in any way. And they're not going to get them word for word, but they may say respect. Oh, okay. One of our core values is respect without exception. Your core values respect. Awesome. It syncs up. And then I try to ask them a little bit more. Okay. What do you mean when you say respects a core value? Why is that a core value to you? How high on the core value priority chart is that? And so I, I really just keep asking about those core values. I give examples of why these core values are important to me so that they know that we're in a mutual conversation. We're trying to find commonality in our core values. I think that's more important than, than anything. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because I feel like, you know, if nothing else, you'll figure out how comfortable people are talking about values in the first place too. And there's a lot of people that are out there ships without a rudder. And it's like, if they don't, aren't comfortable talking about this or opening up, that's kind of a flag in its own. Right. But I also want to dig down. It's like, why is such an important question to ask? And you can really do it on any damn question that you want to, whether it's an interview, <laughs> it's like yeah. a sales thing. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to fake, man. It's, you know, it's tough to work around that a lot of times, but um, I think which stops people from using it more, but it's one of the most powerful things you can do. A lot of people are scared of asking why, because it feels like it could be confrontational. And so when you're in an interview, though, you want to know the most that you can of, of the person, right? You want to you want to know why they feel a certain way, why they think a certain way, why they do certain things. Uh, that's going to tell you more about them than anything you could possibly ask. And I'm not a big when I interview, I am interviewing for the person. I am not interviewing for the job skills. I want to know about this person. I want to know what makes them tick? What makes them get up? What, what makes them uh, thrive? And when I, if I have my right avatar, meaning I know the type of employee that I need for this job, and I have the right core values, and I know that this is going to be a culture fit, it's going to be a success every single time. Okay. That's awesome, man. I want to make sure we're respectful of your time. This has been an awesome interview, dude. It's been fast and furious. I think we've covered a ton awesome. of ground, but I've had a blast. Just to kind of close things out, you know, like what's next for Luis and what's next for Eight Figure Firm? Where, where's everything going for you? So uh, Eight Figure Firm, our, our, our mission is to help 100 law firms develop eight figures in predictable revenue. And so we're on a march for that. We, last year, uh, four of our firms reached eight figures. This year, we have 15 that are tracking eight figures. That'll put us at 19 firms at eight figures. And so we'll be 20% of the way there. So we're really excited about the future and helping people develop a, a law firm that makes not just an impact for them financially, but makes an impact in their community with clients clients, with their staff. And I'm all about elevating staff, elevating the community. And so a figure firm is committed to that mission, you know, helping hundred law firms do that for me. You know, I'm looking forward to living my second dream. Uh, you know, pro baseball was my first dream for many years, but my second dream is to be a public speaker and just share uh, some of my stories of failures in my life th things I've gone through and just share that on the road. So that's uh, what I'm looking forward to here in the next coming years. Okay, awesome. And then for anyone who's like looking to get into your world, what's the best way to take the next step? Absolutely. They can reach me at Luis, L-U-I-S, Scott, J-R dot com, Luis Scott Jr. dot com. And there they can find information about me. Uh, they can see some of my speaker reels. I have three books uh, that they can purchase. Uh, one of them is an ebook that they can download and they can find information about a figure firm. Fantastic. So anyone will get that in the show notes, make sure to check it out. Luis, thank you again for taking the time. It's been a lot of fun for me. And for everybody else, I'll see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode. 